0: The second lesson is uh, found in the book of Revelation, second chapter, and we begin at the twelfth verse. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you are living, where Satan's throne is, yet you are holding fast to my name, and you did not deny your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan lives. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the people of Israel so that they would eat food sacrificed to idols and engage in sexual immorality. So you also have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent then. If not, I will come to you soon and wage war against them with the sword of my mouth." Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. To everyone who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give a white stone, and on the white stone is written a new name that no one knows except the one who receives it. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be Thank you, to God. Thank you, James.
1: There was a man named John. He lived, well, he was imprisoned on an island called Potmos. Patmos. He is the one who is the author of the book of Revelation. So as he said to all the people who his book was intended for, I repeat for you, grace to you all in peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. From Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Amen. Today, Nancy read for us words addressed to the church in Pergamum. And as this seer, John, put it down in Revelation, these words come directly from Jesus Christ through him to the church in Pergamum. And it was recorded on that vision that we call Revelation. Now this morning, before we begin, let's all now admit our ignorance. How many of you can find Pergamum on a map? Nobody gets my joke? I mean, it's on the screen. The map is... It's also on your bulletin covers. Come on. i got to wake you up at 9.30? Ah. That little map, if you look closely or look uh, more readily at your bulletin covers, shows us seven cities which, which were, at their time, situated along a Roman postal route in the part of the world we now call Western Turkey. In the first century, that part of the world was known as the Roman district... Of Asia, The fact that these cities lay along a postal route leads us to believe that Revelation was a letter intended to circulate among at least these seven cities that John addresses. It also means that John wrote about one church and what he wrote about them was intended for the other six churches to see and to learn from. Think about that. How many people at Faith Lutheran Church would like to be the exemplar in a letter that goes to all the other churches in the area about what we do well and what we don't. Make you a little uncomfortable? But so it was for John. It's also quite likely that more than seven churches received the letter, even if their city wasn't directly addressed, and that's because of the biblical importance of the number seven. So there could well have been many more than seven. And if you think about it, that's still the case. I mean, John's revelation has now arrived for consideration in a lot of cities, one of them, Albuquerque. And we, like those who received the letter 2,000 years ago, consider what Christ, through John, had to say to the church in Pergamum. Now, our present lack of knowledge about Pergamum is understandable, and it's understandable for a number of reasons. After all, we don't have much contact with that part of the world unless there's some terrible event like a horrible earthquake, as was the case, in fact, just this past February. Even the Bible mentions this city only one time. It was mentioned only here in the second chapter of Revelation. Now we know, because we, we listen to the Bible stories, we know much more, of course, about the early churches in Corinth and in Ephesus and Jerusalem and and other places. But it turns out that Pergamum was, in fact, a very substantial city. It had quite a bit going on, I think, and and it had much more in common with modern cities like ours than you might think at, at first glance. So let's examine the city Pergamum as it was in John's time for a bit. It'll teach us quite a, quite a lot, I think. You see, this place, Pergamum, had been the capital of the Roman province of Asia for more than 200 years before the birth of Christ. And this letter was written perhaps as much as 100 years after the crucifixion of Christ. So it had been a big place and an important place for a long time. It was renowned for the library there. It was probably the second biggest on earth, only after the one in Alexandria, Egypt. And so it's no wonder that the word parchment actually comes from the same root as Pergamum. A word, parchment, that has carried into our time. And this place, this city, was littered with large, impressive temples. Almost one on every corner, it would seem. But these impressive temples and altars, all built to pagan gods. Behind the city, on this terraced hill, there stood an immense altar to the god, whose name you might have heard. Zeus. Zeus. The altar stood on a huge platform surrounded by tremendous columns, and the whole structure looked like an enormous throne. In Germany, this has been recreated, or one frieze, one side of it has been recreated. It's 1,700 feet long. It's monstrous. And on that platform, on that terraced hill above the city, animal sacrifices were offered 24 hours a day. There were constantly changing teams of priests to administer these sacrifices. There was an overpowering smell of burning animal flesh that filled the air in Pergamum. And all day long, a pillar of smoke could be seen for miles around the city. All of this activity, all of these things to be seen and smelled and, and encountered, kept the power of Zeus constantly in the public's consciousness Pergamum was also a center for the worship of Asclepius he was the god of healing sanatoria an ancient word for ancient hospital buildings were attached to various temples where the sick would lay in hopes that one of the get this sacred snakes would touch and heal them yes you heard me correctly sacred snakes the serpent was asclepius's symbol and it's still part of the caduceus the insignia of medical medical associations even today that's where it comes from pergamum but to john the serpent was a symbol of the personification of evil he knew that bible passage that referred to the serpent as that ancient one who is called the devil and satan With all of this in mind, especially the dominance of these forms of paganism all about the city, it's not surprising that the heavenly Christ writes to the church in Pergamum, I know where you are living, where Satan's throne is. And you understand now how the code was constructed. Obviously, that place was not an easy one for Christians to live in. And so it must have been a great comfort for the relatively small believers in that little church in Pergamum to hear that the Lord knew what they were living through. Roman hostility toward the church was more vicious in Pergamum than it was in many other Roman towns. That, that church had seen real persecution. Persecution. We're even told in just a brief bit of a sentence, not even a whole sentence, that a believer who had worshipped among them, one named Antipas, had been put to death, put to death because of his Christian beliefs. We don't have any other information about Antipas, but we do know that his murder was intended to persuade other Christians to turn away from their faith. His death was also the Roman way to discourage anybody else from becoming a follower of Jesus Christ. So it's obvious. That little church was under attack, both literally and spiritually. And it was, that attack was coming, certainly, from the culture which surrounded them. But it's also true that they had enemies within their own congregation. Some members had fallen prey to the Nicolaitans. That was a sect who had made an impact on the congregation also in Eph- Ephesus. And Pastor Watts told us about the Nicolaitans and Ephesus two weeks ago. The, uh, let's call it the head church. The church in Jerusalem had advised all Gen- Gentile converts to Christianity to avoid eating meat sacrificed to pagan idols. However, Christian churches in different places interpreted that advice in different ways. That doesn't sound modern. I don't know what does, right? The Apostle Paul, for example, taught his churches that the meat that came from pagan sacrificial meals should be avoided. But otherwise, the young Christians were free to eat whatever was served to them or whatever was available in the market. But remember, in Pergamum, Most of the meat sold came from that ever-active sacrificial altar up on the the crest of the hill behind the city, and there was only a token amount actually burned at the altar, and the rest was brought down from the, uh, the activities there into the markets to be sold as food for everybody else. So where were the Christians in Pergamum to get food to eat other than what came from those altars? The Nicolaitans were generally permissive about these kinds of things, and it seems clear from the sternness of the message to Pergamum that at least some Christians there had adopted a lifestyle very similar to that of their pagan neighbors. In fact, their adaptation to the non-Christian environment also involved a permissive attitude to the lax sexual morality of the Nicolaitans as well. Modern commentators argue whether the mention of that sexual immorality is is literal or if it refers to the church as the bride of Christ and that church, the bride of Christ, being unfaithful to Jesus, the bridegroom, by going out and pursuing another lover. Either way, whichever it is, maybe it's both, the Lord tells them to repent, to turn away from those ways, and turn back toward his ways of actively loving their neighbors. Otherwise, punishment will surely follow. This is the situation in the Pergamum congregation, and everybody knows it. As I said, this letter we call Revelation was circulated among at least six other churches, and likely many more. If Jesus were to give a vision to someone to document our present spiritual uh, situation at faith, what would it say? What would our paragraph of the letter say? Would our condition be comparable to that of the church in Pergamum? Well, if so, given that the details are obviously different, there's no big altar up there on Sandia Crest burning animal flesh or anything like that, but what ways, I ask you, are the, is the situation in Pergamum similar to what we live here in Albuquerque? Let's, let's explore this from a couple of directions. First, let's consider the placement of our congregation in its local situation. As I said, we don't have pagan altars burning animal flesh around the clock any place. We don't have altars on street corners, as was the case in Pergamum. But, you know even without that altar burning the flesh up there, I have to say that I admit that I love the smell of a good barbecue. You know, I grew up downwind from a Burger King's exhaust. You know what that can do to a person? And and you know the reaction of your salivary glands when you happen to get near a good steakhouse at dinner hour, right? So we don't have to worry much about the pagan idol meat when we go shopping at, at Kroger's or wherever we happen to go. Aroma though isn't the only temptation confronting modern Christian churches in Albuquerque or in our nation for that matter. Here's just one example. The culture in which we are immersed has come to demand, to demand that we conform to standards applied to the language we employ. The words favored in the society in which we live are not always supportive of Christian morality. Jesus' command to love one's neighbor without exception is not realized when vulgar or disrespectful language dominates discourse. And in our society, it often does. Yet this is the way human communication occurs in all too many, all too many occasions. Even quoting the very words of the Bible, words honored, words carefully studied and taught for now 2,000 years, since Christ at least, is now subject to causing a congregation to be canceled, as it's called, from access to social media platforms. And I have to tell you personally, when I first got here, I started teaching a class on Genesis. And I I put a piece of artwork there from 1960, showing Adam and Eve in in, in the artist's conception of what they looked like. And our church was contacted by social media two years ago saying that that was inappropriate and must be taken down. And so it is. What the church has to say isn't always welcome in the world now. Speaking truth, sisters and brothers, from the one who is the truth can make a congregation the object of scorn in today's world. It's an unfortunate and sad fact. As the number of Christian worshipers has decreased across the country and other places, those who remain have been increasingly sort of described as those people over there. That's us, those people. You know, they they talk about us as those do-gooders who try to make the world some sort of better place. And those are said with a derisive tone, not flattering in the least. And that leaves folks like you and me outside of popular culture, sometimes out of popular circles in our neighborhoods. Standing against ancient pressures was much more difficult than anything we presently face. Certainly true of people in Pergamum. Um, And so we're fortunate in that regard. But nonetheless, the societal pressures are there for us. And Pergamum's ability to withstand the pressures of their time brought them congratulations in the letter of Revelation. Now, I think we here at Faith have done pretty well as a congregation in much the same way. We've resisted societal pressures to change the form and content of our worship. We've resisted any pressures to change the interpretation, the uh, the orthodox interpretation of our biblical teaching. And we have not wavered at all in our commitment to neighbor-loving missions. There are even things said from faith's altar, pulpit, classrooms, fellowship venues, and other places which are subject to cancellation, should they be scrutinized by other people beyond our walls. That's all true. And, And we're to be congratulated that we speak as we do, despite the fact that we might be scrutinized. But at the same time, we admit we're not perfect. There are certainly things we can change. We we might improve this or that, or, or we might add something to our ministries. However, we should take this moment, and we should take it right now, right where we sit, to congratulate those who worship in this place. Maintaining the teachings of Jesus Christ and the orthodox practices of the Lutheran Church continued to be offered among us. And that's an exceedingly good thing. And we should appreciate that, especially on the Sabbath. The second area to explore applies to each of us, not as a congregation, but individually. Recall some of the members of the Pergamum congregation had fallen in with the teachings of the Nicolaitans. And others were pretty happy living the lifestyle of their pagan neighbors. We have been long taught, and you've heard many times, that Christians live in the world and we are not of the world. We live already this side of the waters of baptism and not yet passed through the gates of heaven. We live already as God's sons and daughters. Right? Or do we? Or do we? Do we live as Jesus would appreciate for one hour a week when we're in this room? Or do we live as his own sisters and brothers every day, every hour, in every situation? That's something for each of us to answer. And it's not something for a show of hands, obviously. But this is a serious question for each of us to prayerfully explore. Yes, this morning, but not just this morning, perhaps, as we wake each day. As the people of Pergamum were called to do in this regard, so are we. Examine our own hearts and our own actions. John's revelation to Pergamum winds itself up by saying that those who stand firm against both persecution and false teachings, to those people the Lord promises to give some of what is called the hidden manna. Mana, as the people who have been studying Exodus for this year know, it was the nourishment given by by God to the Israelites during their long journey from Egypt to the Promised Land. We naturally crave that nourishment. Nourishment that only God can give to sustain us into and through the life to come. Besides the hidden mana, the heavenly Christ promises to give a white stone And on that white stone, given to us individually, is a new name, one that no one except the one who receives it can know. Seems sort of cryptic. Let me help you break that code, too. White stones, as opposed opposed to black ones, were used by ancient jury members during trials. And a vote to acquit someone was the casting of a white stone someone who had been accused, receives a white stone, they were free. Black stone, quite the opposite. White stones had a second use. They were also used as entrance tickets to things like plays and banquets. Either of these ancient uses of white stones may well be applicable here. One indicates that the faithful, that's you and me, the faithful will be acquitted in the final judgment. The other anticipates entrance into the heavenly banquet. Both are to be desired. And that new name, that new name may be a new name for the faithful which symbolizes their new character and their new status as they enter the kingdom of God. And even the color itself, just the color white, never minding the stone, that color is the color of victory. It's actually a color that we Christians stole from somebody else. When Caesar used to lead his legions and attack some district somewhere and conquer it for the, for the greater Rome, his victory parade was always in a white tunic and riding on a white horse. It was his color of victory. Early Christians took it in as Jesus' color of victory over sin, death, and the devil. It's the reason... White is used at baptism. It's the reason in the Easter season your altar is adorned in white. Easter. Easter carries the color white. So, sisters and brothers, may you in your hand find a white stone given to you by Christ. And may your brothers and sisters in this place, each of them, hold an identical stone. And may you have Jesus' protection and appreciation as you go out into the world to love those that he sent you to love, no matter what the world out there has to say about your missional vocation. And may you hold to the teachings of Jesus Christ, no matter what the majority in the world has to say. And, and Christians have never been the majority. Please know that. So may you hold fast the following Christ through all things thick and thin and may he be pleased with you and show his great appreciation when we meet him face to face. Amen.